The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. It is summer here in Massachusetts, even if technically it's not summer yet. It certainly feels like summer today. It's in the high... Uh, high 80s, I think. I saw 91 at some point while I was on the highway today. So uh, for all of you rising seniors out there, and maybe you have uh, ended your school year already. Maybe you're finishing up with the last couple of weeks. But if you haven't planned to get started on your applications this summer already, well, guess what? You should start. Uh, and this is really a good time to work on your college application. So if you're currently stuck staring at those prompts, uh, the common app prompts specifically, and wondering where to go from there, or if you're imagining that you'll be in that position in a couple weeks, you don't want to miss this because we have uh, part one of a two-part series, and my colleague Ian Fisher is going to be offering tips and suggestions for approaching the first two prompts in the common app. And then in the part two, we're going to talk about the 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 last three prompts in the Common App. And then also, uh, Stacey McFeeders is here to walk us through the pros and cons of consolidating college loans. But first, we're very excited to welcome Fordham's Monica Esser, who's going to offer her perspective on international admissions to U.S. colleges. Welcome, Monica. All right. Happy to have you here today. So just for our listeners' sake, Monica has directed international undergraduate outreach, recruitment, and admission at Fordham for eight years, and she's been involved in advising and teaching international students for more than 15 years. So I really can't think of a better person to talk to us about international students applying to U.S. colleges. So we're super excited that you're here today. Um, I think that probably one of uh, the most common things that we get asked about is, you know, people know what it's like to apply to college in their own country, but they have questions about applying to a school here in the U.S. So in your opinion, what's one of the biggest differences between applying to college, uh, you know, in another country where you currently live and applying to schools here? Well, uh, there are actually several differences um, that I would highlight. I think that and for many students, uh, the, the college application process in their home country outside of the U.S. is a relatively simple process. It's fairly straightforward. It's usually uh, fairly organized um, because there's kind of one system or one, one way to apply. So the U.S. system is obviously much more diverse, um, and there are kind of lots of different uh, options out there. Um, there are lots of different uh, requirements, so it's a 
um, I think, a, a slightly more challenging process. There's more included in an application for a U.S. college, and the time frame is completely different. So, you know, generally to prepare for required testing, to complete the application, to do all the research that students need to do, they, they really ideally should be starting uh, a year to two years, uh, if not even earlier, um, for when they want, wish to attend university in the U.S. And so I think a lot of times students are unprepared for that because maybe in their home country they might just apply a month or two before they, they intend to enroll. Gotcha. Um, so... Yeah, that's clearly a, a huge difference. And in fact, I recall a couple of years ago, we had a student that we worked with from Australia who shared that a lot of his friends who planned to apply to U.S. colleges never ended up doing it because they didn't plan far enough in advance and they didn't realize. And so he was saying he was thankful um, that he'd gotten an earlier start to it because he actually was able to apply to U.S. colleges. So that's a big thing. Another big question that I get and that I see, I'm on a counselor group on Facebook and I see being um, asked frequently is, how do you decide if you're a U.S. student or an international student? Okay, so that's, all, that's actually a very common question that we get. A lot of people walk into our admissions office and say, okay, you know, this is my situation. Should I be applying as an international student or as an American student? And, and I think, um, you know, for the most part, in general, many university applications these days, including the Common App, uh, there's just one application for, for students. Um, you, you don't decide for whether you're going to complete an international or a, a domestic or American application. You complete the application, and in doing so, you fill out the information that then allows the college or university to, um, you know, for their own purposes internally, uh, put you into kind of different buckets as an international student from within the U.S. perhaps or an international student from abroad, um, you know, based on your citizenship or even an American who maybe is living overseas. Um, so there's, there are kind of different categories, but usually students don't have to decide that for themselves. You know, they don't have to self-identify, but just by answering the questions about what their citizenship is and where they're applying from, they'll kind of self-identify to, to colleges and universities, um, you know, how, how they should be considered. Um, right. There are a few yeah. schools that Sorry. probably have a separate international student application, but, but they're, you know, not, I don't think there are that many at this point. Yeah, and I think um, I probably should have set that question up a little bit better and, and, and provided a little bit more around why someone would have a question like that. But a great example would be a student who is a citizen, let's say, of Hong Kong, but attending boarding school here in the U.S., um, yep. and they're applying to U.S. colleges you know, they're sometimes worried about what, how do, do I make that distinction? And I think your point is a good one that most cases, or in many cases anyway, since we all know, if you listen to the show, there are very few times when you can make a blanket statement about college admissions, <laughs> um, that it's going to be, uh, that you're just going to fill out the application. And in doing that, and in answering all of those questions, the colleges will know how they're going to consider you. Um, exactly. You know, at Penn, yeah. where I worked, we considered a student uh, in the app. They were considered and read by the regional director in the area where they attended high school. So you, if you lived in Hong Kong but went to high school in Connecticut, for example, I read the state of Connecticut. I was going to read your application. Um, if you needed financial aid, then it got a little tricky because we had limited financial aid for international students. So then that might go to a different committee for a final consideration of whether or not you could actually be admitted. But I would represent that student in that committee. Um, mm -hmm. It wouldn't go to a different team. But that's how Penn did it. That's not necessarily how other people are going to do it. And it is going to vary from place to place. Um, exactly. 
What, and then here's another one where I think it's going to vary, but let's throw it out there anyway. What about language testing? Um, what kind is required and who typically has to take those tests? Yeah, I mean, the answer is, is as you predicted, I think that it, it, the requirements for admission to different universities do vary. Um, I think that in general, non-native speakers of English, uh, you know, are, are kind of in the group of students that would be required to take some type of, of English proficiency test, the most common being, I think, the TOEFL exam, which is an American exam, but there are other exams that are very widely accepted as well, one of them being the IELTS, I-E-L-T-S mm-hmm. exam, which is out of Australia. Um, so a lot of universities will accept um, those tests and sometimes others, and that's usually listed on their website. Um, but exactly who, re- who is required to take it can be a tricky question. You know, at Fordham, our policy is really all non-native English speakers are required to take the TOEFL, and then if there are any exceptions, we might make them on a case-by-case basis. So, for example, an international student um, who's in- for whom English is not their first language, but they've lived really since age four in the United States and, and been in an English language uh, American classroom, you know, that student, we don't really need a TOEFL score for them because we have plenty of other information on which to um, gauge their their, uh, language skills. Um, So we might waive that student's TOEFL requirement, but but we generally do require a TOEFL for students who have just been in the U.S. for uh, one or two or three years. Um, You know, that's something that's still significant for us in the application review. But there are other schools that have different policies depending on, you know, whether or not you've attended an American high school or whether or not you've attended an English language curriculum school. Um, So you really do have to kind of check each school that you're applying to and their list of application requirements for international students specifically. Right. And I think this points to what you were saying in the very first piece about big differences between applying to college in your home country versus schools in the U.S., and that is all of those differences that exist. So it's going to be very difficult for you to say, well, I don't need a TOEFL for this school, so I guess I don't need it for any of the schools because the other schools may have different policies. One school might say, hey, if you've got a 600 or above on the critical reading portion of the SAT, you're fine. We don't need, we're not worried about it. And a different, and another school might have a totally different policy. So. Yes, that's very true. Yeah. And I think as a rule of thumb, probably what you want to do is, you know, Make a list of all the schools you're considering and research all of their policies and look for commonalities. But if even one requires that TOEFL, you need to plan to sit and take it. Um, and that so adds that you have to it. exactly, you know, the time frame that I mentioned before, you know, it's one thing to complete the application a few months before it's due, but to really prepare for, for example, a TOEFL exam for some students that might, they might want to put several months into that so that, you know, uh, elongates the, uh, the process of applying to U.S. colleges in some cases. but Right, yeah. exactly. And um, in terms of other testing, what about the SAT and the ACT? If you're doing the language testing, are those still going to be required? Are subject tests required for in international cases, students? Yeah, in some cases, yes. I think, again, it depends. Uh, it varies from university to university. I think there are increasing numbers of U.S. universities who um, – are either uh, SAT optional or who will waive the SAT for international students, but by by definitely not all of them. Um, you know, again, my institution we require students to submit, um, you know, both the SAT or ACT and a TOEFL or IELTS exam. So, you know, we are expecting students to do some additional testing on top of what a mm-hmm. domestic American student would, would complete. Um, and then, you know, in some cases, again, the, the, the university might require students to take subject tests. 
um, not and not in every case. It, it really it really does vary, and it's it's exactly what you referenced before. It's a great idea to kind of make a list of all the schools you're intending to apply to, and then really you know set up a column for. English language testing, and then SAT testing, and then, uh, you know, maybe specific subject test testing so that you, you know, can check all the boxes. <laughs> right, um, exactly. And, and complete, and because in some cases, that, you know, there, there will be multiple tests that you have to prepare for. Um, and, and that, I think, sometimes impacts students' decisions on where they want to apply, um, depending on their time frame and, and their background. You know, it sometimes can feel a little daunting, um, but hopefully it's worth it for those that go through it. Yeah, absolutely. And I do. One thing I hate to see is a student find a school that does seem perfect in every way, except that they're missing one key requirement because they didn't think about it early enough. There's nothing worse than not being able to apply or applying, but knowing you're not going to really have a shot because you're not meeting all of their requirements. So um, for those international students or parents of international students who are have this in their sights, uh, I'm going to reiterate Monica's first thing, which is this starts a couple years out at least. Um, so you want to be thinking about that as early as possible if you can. Uh, let's talk about the transcript uh, and I think probably more broadly about how colleges evaluate um, transcripts from other countries, many of whom have different education systems. They have things like A-levels or the French baccalaureate. Um, some will feature programs that are actually quite similar to U.S. Um, system programs, like an IB program, which is becoming a little more pro- international baccalaureate program, which is coming a little more common here, or AP courses, things like that, um, but some which can be very different. How do you deal with all of those different um, things when you're evaluating applicants? Uh, it's things, it's one of the joys of, of international admissions at the college level is the, um, the incredible variety of transcripts that we get to look at and um, really, really hopefully become experts at, at uh, analyzing. Um, it, it, in most cases, requires specialized training, and we provide that at, at Fordham University for our staff, and many, many universities do, either through in-house or external training, to help uh, the staff that are reviewing international applications really become accustomed to what to look for, what are grade equivalencies, what is a student in, uh, you know, as you mentioned, a French baccalaureate system, uh, what, what are our, our expectations for a student going through that academic program as opposed to a student going through a, a U.S. high school program? Um, you know, what do we look for as, as acceptable grades? And, and again, you know, each institution is a little bit different in what they look for, um, but it, it does in many cases require a, a kind of translation into a, uh, a U.S. system or an understanding of how the student is doing on, on kind of, you know, a, a comparison to the U.S. scale. Um, but at the same time, I think a lot of what's taken into account in that kind of review is not just the grades a student has received, um, but, you know, what is the, um, what are the chances of getting those grades? You know, how, is, how easy is it to achieve the equivalent of an A in the French baccalaureate mm-hmm. program, you know, um, yep. because that varies widely ac- across different countries. And, you know, we find that overall, you know, in the U.S., there's, there's considerable more grade inflation than there is in many, many places outside. So achieving that A uh, in the U.S. might be kind of a standard 
ex- expectation uh, for American students, but is not necessarily the standard expectation for a student applying from a different education system because an A is practically impossible to achieve. Um, right. So that's part of our training as well, is not just what the grades are equivalent to, but, but um, you know, really what, the type of, what type of student, you know, is attaining different grades um, or different scores overseas and, you know, when, when they're taking different tests, what type of schools they're going to, what the evaluations uh, that, the, that we see results of are considering. Um, it's a fairly complex process, and, and we often refer to it as, as both a, a little bit of science and a little bit of art um, mm-hmm. to kind of understand and translate to something that we can use um, <laughs> in the American <laughs> college, uh, you know, review pro- application review process. Um, it takes some time, uh, I think, and, um, you know, can, can be uh, a little bit confusing, but there are a lot of good resources out there, and um, people that have done an international application review for a while get pretty good at it, and, and I think uh, do, a, do a pretty good job of, of evaluating students fairly accurately in many cases. Yeah, I mean, I think that especially the more international students you get or want, um, the more adept you get at this kind of um, yeah. evaluation. And I think the key takeaway here for our listeners is simply that um, these are being looked at pretty closely and not just looked at as, okay, well, this would be equivalent to an A. And if you don't have those at a school where they expect all A's and you're automatically out, because like you say, those A's may be virtually impossible to achieve. And we actually even do that level or did when I was at Penn, that level of insight or apply that level of insight to different U.S. high schools. I mean, there were a few schools Mm -hmm. in my region where it was almost impossible to get an A. So when you saw a student with um, a straight A average, you knew that that was probably one of the highest flyers to come through that school in a long time. Um, And that is the level of insight that many admissions officers do have at that when you're doing a holistic read, for sure. But even when you're not, even if all you're looking at are um, transcripts and test scores, there's still a level of insight that you gain into the different schools and how they grade and, and those types of things. And um, no more so probably than when you're looking at international. Um, so we have time for one more question. And this one for me is about um, involvement outside of the classroom. So it's a big thing here in the U.S., extracurricular activities. Uh, I think sometimes people worry just as much about what they're doing outside of the classroom as what they're doing inside of the classroom. And for good reason, because as the more selective, um, as the schools get more selective, the more important that stuff is. How do you adjust expectations or do you adjust expectations for international students who often don't have the same type of um, emphasis on extracurricular activities. Yeah, I think, you know, that's another one of the challenges um, because we are reviewing applications from students from, again, a very diverse set of schools and and countries. And we try to give the same type of nuanced um, review uh, in the in that arena, the arena of kind of extracurriculars um, that we do to the transcript. So we, we try to use our knowledge of different education systems and school systems um, to understand maybe how much time or what might be available at given schools for, you know, students to be participatory in. You know, in, in some cases, uh, there are international or American schools overseas that have lots of extracurricular activities and lots of opportunities. And then there are uh, education 
educational institutions, uh, secondary educational institutions overseas where, you know, there's, there's really no extracurricular activities offered. So a student couldn't sign up for clubs or be part of a sports team through school. Um, you know, we would hope uh, here at Fordham that they were involved in some way in their community, um, you know, that they play an instrument or that they played on a sports team outside of the, of the school or they did, you know, they could represent to us in some way that they, you know, what, what activities they participated in outside of academic activities. But we do, I think, um, really try to contextualize our expectations with regard to exactly that, you know, what type of extracurricular activities should students be listing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we certainly would not have exactly the same expectations of students from every school, um, and we certainly try to understand, you know, the context uh, that a student is applying from when, when we review their application. And again, that's a bit time-consuming, um, and, you know, we do the best we can there because there's, there's such a big variety. But I think students should be aware that, that there is some consideration given to that. So, um, you know, again, you know, it's not um, the expectation that, you know, every part of, of an application form is, is filled out and, and a huge resume is submitted. I mean, I think in a lot of cases, being uh, very active in kind of a, a ha- small handful of activities can be really worthwhile. Mm-hmm. So. Absolutely. Monica, thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining us here today and sharing all this insight you've gained over all those years of working with international students. Um, After the break, Stacey McFeeters is going to be offering her thoughts on whether or not to consolidate college loans. And she has a great background and insight for this. So uh, don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everybody. Uh, For our next segment, I'm really excited to welcome former Emerson College financial aid officer and current college coach educator Stacey McFeeters to the show. Welcome, Stacey. Hi, Beth. Thanks so much. 
Absolutely. So I want to note for our listeners that you also worked in education finance at J.P. Morgan Chase. And when you were there, you dealt with both federal and private loans. So you are particularly well suited to discuss today's topic. Um, I sure am, yeah. Yes. And I know that you're spending a lot of your days actually on this very topic of uh, student loans. So um, let's start with the first piece, which is what is exactly student loan consolidation? It's a great question, and it's actually a great time to be asking the question, because I think a lot of students who have recently graduated from college and are thinking about their sort of load of, of, of student loan debt, and it's, it's sort of overwhelming, um, it, this is a good time to start asking questions. So student loan consolidation, particularly on the federal side, if you have federal student loans, federal direct Stafford, federal direct um, Parent PLUS loans, or even what used to be called the FFELP loans, um, all qualify for what is considered federal loan consolidation. And what federal loan consolidation allows you to do is to combine all of your loans into one payment. In many cases, if you've been in school for a few years, you probably have a variety of interest rates, some variable, possibly some fixed. So in going through federal loan consolidation, it really allows you to combine those into one payment. What they would do is take sort of a, uh, a mix of your interest rates um, it, it averaged them and then sort of round them up to the nearest eighth, and then you would be in a, in a, in a um, fixed-rate environment for the life of your loans. So on the federal side, it basically is a, com- a combining of your loans, taking your old loans and making it one new loan. Okay. So is there a difference between that and it sounds a lot like refinancing your loan. So what's the difference? So there actually is a difference. When, when you're thinking about your loan portfolio in general, you want to think about federal loans under possibly a consolidation program. And then if you also have private loans, you might think about whether or not you want to combine those, A, together, and then B, with your federal loans. If that's something that you're thinking about doing for whatever reason, whether you want to combine your payments to simplify, whether you want to lower your monthly interest rate or uh, merge, I'm sorry, lower your, your monthly payment or merge your interest rates, you might want to think about what is considered loan refinance. The basic difference is loan refinance usually happens outside of the federal process, and it's very much like what you think about when you refinance your home. You're basically taking your old loans, combining them, and then making them a new loan, but aside from the federal program. Now, ah, okay. most of these refinance organizations are you know, banks, private institutions. Some of them will allow you to combine your federal loans with your, with your private loans. Others may not. So in doing your homework, you want to take, take a look and see if you know, that's a good idea. Do you want to combine them? Do you not want to combine them? Um, another thing to consider is for those who've just recently graduated, in most cases, absolutely on your federal loans and even on some of your private loans, you may be in what is called your grace period, which means that you're not actually required to make payments for a, you know, six months after you graduate. If you decide to refinance or consolidate now, you actually give up your grace period and would begin repayment at the time of consolidation. So what I'm actually encouraging you to think about is take a little bit of time. Look through your options. What do you really want to accomplish? Do you want to combine everything to make it easier? Do you want to have a lower payment? You know, what is most important to you? And then sort of look at all of your options. What you may find in doing your work over the next couple of months is you might be able to accomplish everything you've just said by switching into a different repayment program. So gotcha. if you're looking, for example, at your federal loans and you have four federal loans for you know, every year you were enrolled and you just don't think you can make your monthly payment, consolidation and refinance might not be the best option for you. You might just need to look to see what is the Department of Education offering 
instead of a 10-year repayment, maybe you could take 15 years, or maybe you could pay less now and more later. So you may actually have more options available to you than you think. Gotcha. So I guess this gets to the the question of whether consolidation is always a good idea, and it maybe is not. Um, and it's not sort of a blanket approach, as nothing is in college admissions and college finance. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you, so, yeah. Okay. It's a fantastic question. You know, and the answer is consolidation is not the right approach or refinance. So consolidation and refinance are not always the right approach. Um, in the case that I just, the example that I just gave, someone who just simply feels they can't make the monthly payment could absolutely take a look at their repayment options. There are uh, income-based repayment options that, that may allow you to pay based on what you're currently earning. If you're just graduating and your income has been fairly low, I would take advantage of that. One of the things I do want to note for you is when you're looking at refinancing and consolidating, very often you give up some rights that you might have under federal programs. So if you're really just looking to make it easier, whatever that easier is, take a look at what's already out there before you kind of jump into refinancing and consolidating. They can be great options, but you want to make sure you've kind of looked at everything first. Right. And that it's the right option specifically for you. Um, Absolutely. So you mentioned a a minute ago about the fact that you get a grace period and there's a certain amount of time you have before you actually have to start paying back some of these loans. Is there, um, when should you consider looking at consolidation and refinancing? Uh, You obviously need to take the time to take a look at it, but is this something you should start thinking about in your junior year of college or something a little later on? You know, very often we see that it would happen a little bit later on. I think there's a couple things you want to consider. You want to think about the loan, the types of loans that you have, and really, you know, what you are going to be able to do when you graduate. So if you have federal loans only, you may not have, you know, too much difficulty right out, right out of the box in, in, in either making those payments or taking advantage of your grace period and then making those payments. But if you're someone that has borrowed private loans and federal loans, you feel like before you even get started, the debt could be overwhelming, you may want to start looking at that as you're approaching the end of your senior year. Another reason that could be really good timing for you is at that time, you still obviously are are probably on campus and may even be able to take advantage of going into your financial aid office at your college and asking these questions. Not that they wouldn't be a resource for you after you've graduated, but usually while you're still there and maybe even going through the, um, you know, exiting process, it's something that they're going to take you through anyway. So certainly, you know, by the end of your senior year, you want to think about what you have ahead of you. Um, For those who have already graduated, fear not. If you're in your grace period, you have a few months. It's six months from, from when you've left school. So usually your first payment would be due sometime in October or November. And again, that's on federal loans. Some private loans may have already required that you, that you enter repayment. Um, but take some time and, and kind of look at your options. Once you've refinanced or consolidated, it, it's usually something you can do once. Um, so you want to make sure you've selected your best option. Right, and I think a big impact on that option is probably whether or not you're already working. If you have jobs lined up or you're planning to, you know, the more you know about how much money you have coming in, the more you'll know in order to make a good decision about whether it makes sense to consolidate or refinance or leave them as is um, and do something different. What yeah, about ma- married couples, people who are um they get married, they're both carrying a lot of debt. Can they consolidate their loans together to make the repayment process a little easier? 
They actually cannot. There used to be a program for what was called spousal consolidation, and that actually was eliminated a number of years ago. And, and, and as a former uh, aid administrator, I have to say I, I think that was a great idea um, because I think, as we all know, things happen. And once you've made a consolidation loan, it's normally made, you know, it, you know, under one person as the primary, and, and and then ultimately that person becomes responsible for the for the for the full burden. So mm. um, it's no longer available, and I actually am, am pretty pleased that that's the case. I think there are a lot of other options out there where, as individuals, you can. Um, you know, reform your debt, uh, refinance your debt, keep it separate, but still handle it as a family. So at this point, there there are not opportunities for spousal consolidation, um, but certainly they can, you know, you can kind of consider each of your refinance or consolidation programs individually and in how mm-hmm. they work into your family budget. Right, absolutely. And it does sound like that's a good thing because marriages end and you don't yeah. want to be left holding the bag for your ex-spouse's um, college debt. Uh, when you were really just trying to make it easier to write one check. Sometimes exactly. it's better to write a couple of checks. Um, what about parents? Can they consolidate a PLUS loan with their child's loan so that the child can take over all of the loan payments and take that off of their books? They cannot. So that's a, that's a great question. So a lot of times parents will say, listen, we'll take the PLUS loan, but ultimately you'll be responsible for it. And mm-hmm. certainly families have obviously the, the, uh, the, the ability to, to have that conversation, but what they need to understand is that that loan, the Parent PLUS loan, is exclusively in the name of the parent. The student is not an applicant on that loan, um, and they are not, to, they are not permitted in, in consolidation. So if the understanding is that the student is going to take the burden of that loan, that's going to have to be a, a pretty big trust situation for families um, because they cannot be consolidated with student loans because they're, they're not technically a part of the student's debt burden. So parents who are taking PLUS loans you know, understand that ultimately that could be your, your, your loan regardless of what you may have agreed as a family. Right. Uh, and potentially not, you're not, unless you went and got something legally enforceable, and I don't even know if that's possible, where your child agreed to pay it off, you may end up holding the bag on that one too. You got um, it. You got and it. Maybe yep, you're okay absolutely. with that. Is there <laughs> anything that we didn't, um, that I didn't ask you about that you think is important for our listeners to know about the whole issue of consolidating loans? You know, I think we covered a lot of it. I think when you're getting ready to, 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 to think about what your next steps are in, in the repayment perspective, be an informed consumer. I think we would say that about anything, but realistically, you've got this debt, whether it's the average student loan debt of 26000 or, you know, one of these story, stories that we hear about that could be upwards of 100000 Just be prepared. Do your homework. You know that you'll be expected to make standard payments over perhaps 10 years, but if you have excessive debt, find out what your options are. If you feel like you want to do something differently, know what your options are. I think more times than not, we find in speaking with families that they immediately think, I have to refinance or I have to consolidate. But a few minutes into a conversation, we find they really don't need to do that. All they really need to do is is select a different payment method, even if it's for a short-term period of time. They opt into that repayment method, find that things change or improve. You can always change into a different repayment type. What you want to be careful about is what is your end game. If you consolidate, let's say, for example, you've been in repayment for a few years and you're like, okay, I need to consolidate. Understand you're now adding more time to your overall um, repayment. So have you really done yourself a favor or have you just, in essence, doubled what you would have paid? Mm -hmm. you know, I think a good idea is go out and use some calculators online. Go to the Department of Ed website. Um, it, uh, visit studentaid.gov. 
um, that studentloans.gov. There's a lot of calculators and different tools explaining the repayment terms that can really help you kind of understand the best way to move forward. Stacy, that's super helpful. I really appreciate that and um, appreciate you joining us here today. Um, we're going to go to the break, but afterwards, Ian Fisher, Fisher is here to continue the college essay conversation that we began way back in February. Um, so we'll be back with that shortly. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. As I mentioned before the break, this next segment is really a continuation of a conversation that uh, began back on our February 26th show which was, I think, the third show that we did when my guest Ian Fisher and I discussed how to choose an essay topic. Uh, By the way, if you're interested in that show, you can access it in the archives or download it for free from iTunes, just an FYI. Uh, Today, Ian's back to talk about the Common App Essay Prompts. Hi, Ian. Hey, Beth. How you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I'm excited to talk about essays. I think um, now is sort of the time that a lot of my students are getting started in drafting these essays, and so this is perfect timing to bring the conversation back to the attention of, of the listeners. Absolutely. And uh, similarly, I'm having students are already starting writing their essays and I'm already editing essays. And sometimes I think, wow, I can't believe I'm already editing essays again. Didn't the fall just end? But <laughs> yeah, it all comes around again. It is. Yeah. So back in March, the Common App released their revised prompts for the coming year. And actually, we did a segment on that, although I don't remember when that segment aired, but if you're interested, also in the archives. Uh, And 
Um, they largely remained the same, except that uh, that prompt number four was completely changed. They got rid of the old one, put in a new one, and then they added some different language to most of the questions. Um, the only one that was completely unchanged was question three, but we're not talking about question three today. Um, today, we're going to talk about questions or prompts one and two, but before we dig into that, uh, I, I'd love to get your thoughts. I have my own, but I'd love to get your thoughts on what you use the prompts for and the role that you see them playing in the essay process. Yeah, so when I start thinking about essays or, and, and encourage my students to start thinking about what they're going to write about, I actually discourage them from looking at the prompts. So I'll, I'll ask them, I say, have you taken a look at the Common App prompts? And they'll say, no, I haven't. Um, and I'll say, well, don't, don't look at them yet. Um, what I want to do is engage in a little bit of brainstorming and sort of big picture thinking about who you are, what matters to you, what you'd like to share with an admission officer, just completely irrespective of what the actual prompts are, because I don't want the prompts to sort of focus your attention on some element that you might share that isn't necessarily central to your identity. Yep. Um, and and I so I think about the prompts more as sort of an opportunity to think about how you might share your story, um, to think about a certain way of focusing the topic that you've identified uh, that's important to you. But if you just sort of start with the prompts and say, okay, which of these things am I going to choose to respond to? There, there isn't anything sort of inherently about any of the five prompts that, that makes one better than another. And, and so it's, it's more about sort of finding what you'd like to share first and then identifying the prompt that's going to help you convey that to an admission officer. Yeah, and I completely agree uh, on this front. I also do not have my kids start, my students start with the Common App prompts. I will sometimes have them use them as a tool to brainstorm. If you were going to respond to this prompt, what kinds of things might you write about? But for me, the ideal scenario is actually they write an essay and then we decide what prompt it fits. Um, So in many cases, my students don't turn to those prompts until the very end of the process. Um, And that makes a lot of parents nervous. And quite honestly, it makes a lot of students nervous. But um, I get them to trust me. And I find that it typically works. And one of the reasons that I think that works is because prompt number one, (laughs) which we may as well turn to those prompts right now, to me, equates to the old. So just for background for everybody who's listening here um, and who maybe didn't go through this process a few years ago, the Common app made some big changes to their prompts last year. Um, Prior to that, the prompts that they had 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 been around for a number of years. And one of the options was a sixth topic that basically said topic of your choice. So, hey, you could address one of these other five prompts, but if you aren't interested um, and you want to write about something else, then choose option six and write about whatever you want to write about. And for me, the new prompt one Um, which I will read right now. Some students have a background, identity, interest, or talent that is so meaningful, they believe their application would be incomplete without it. If this sounds like you, then please share your story. Uh, To me, that's topic of your choice. I'd love to get your thoughts on what you think. Yeah, I I tell my students that that, that's basically the choose-your-own-adventure prompt. I mean, you can basically fit anything into that 
into that prompt. And that's what I tell a lot of parents and students when, you know, like, like the students you work with, they say, well, what if I write something and it doesn't fit with the prompts that the Common App has? I'll say, well, let's look at this one, you know, because number one is basically saying, tell us about something that mm-hmm. is, you know, central to your identity. And so that can literally be anything. Right. Exactly. Tell us about something. Where doesn't really matter what it is. Just tell us something. Uh, so, you know, how do you, if you do have a student that's sort of really not sure what they want to write about, but number one seems the most compelling to them, um, how do you have them think about that prompt in terms of, you know, what might you share if you were responding to prompt number one? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. That, I think that's what's really tough for students. And one of the things that I would encourage students to be cautious of is the, the last sentence of this prompt says, if this sounds like you, then please share your story. And the word story can be really problematic when you start working on a college essay because a story could be interpreted as talking about something that happened to you rather than mm-hmm. sort of describing how you responded to something that was happening to you. Um, it might suggest that you tell your whole life story, which <laughs> I think is really problematic. You want to focus in on something that's very, very specific. And so, you know, as far as storytelling is concerned, students really need to be cautious that they're not just describing something that happened to them. And so when I brainstorm with students and start talking about prompts, um, I like to ask them a lot of questions that sort of get them thinking about how they are different from those with whom they spend a lot of time. So how would your friends describe you? Um, what would your family members say about you? What are your, your talents or, or interests um, as other people see them? And, and that can sometimes be helpful for students because I think if I just tell a student to, to you know, describe what they're passionate about, a lot of students sort of lock up. They, they don't know quite how to say that. Um, but if I say, you know, what would your friends say about you? How would they describe who you are? What, what kinds of relationships do you develop with the people that are closest to you? Um, what are you known for within your school? Um, that will sort of help students to think about some aspect of their identity by which they are known. And that's often the thing that they um, can then take and, and make an excellent essay out of. Yeah, and actually, I have a great example of that. So I had a student that I was working with last year, and I asked him that question, what are you known for? And he said, well, I'm sort of known for being the paper airplane guy. I said, what? You know, we were struggling to figure out what he was going to write about. I'm like, the paper airplane guy? I'm intrigued. (laughs) And sure enough, he constructed these elaborate paper airplanes, and he also had a real interest in um, aviation. aviation and and I'm blanking on the word I'm looking for, but that kind of engineering and um, also had a YouTube channel that lots of people logged in and and had a, almost a million hits on. And I didn't really know much about it until I asked him that question. So I think that's a great question to ask students. Um, another thing that I sometimes um, talk to my students about before we start writing anything is really who are you... Um, among the people who know you best. And for some students, that's, that's the person they are when they're with their family. But for other students, it may be who they are when they're with their closest friend or with their boyfriend or girlfriend or um, with their camp friends versus their school friends. You know, who, who is that person that you, th- when you find yourself, you're most at ease and you're most um, 
fun and give us a glimpse of that person in the things you choose to write about. Um, And that sometimes gets them thinking, not always, but sometimes. So that's a attack that I've used as well. Do you have any... um, any examples of students maybe who've done a great job on the prompt uh, or maybe not done a particularly good job because they missed some key element? I, I think that the, the biggest sort of pitfall with students with this particular element is that they try and focus on, on too many things and as a result mm-hmm. just become unfocused. So, you know, I think that if you're going to talk about your background, stick with that. If you want to talk about some element of your identity, stick with that. You want to be sort of unidimensional here so that you're really conveying a single idea uh, to a college. Um, I also think that this is actually one of the best prompts for those students who begin by drafting their University of California essays Mm -hmm. um, because the UC essay prompt um, that everybody has to write is about um, the world you come from and how it has shaped your dreams and aspirations. And that's very much an opportunity to talk about your culture, your family, or your background and that, I think, is directly connected to this prompt number one. And, and there's nothing unethical about using an essay that you write for the University of California and, and a similar essay for the Common App, provided that you write it in a way that it responds to the prompt. So um, for a lot of my students, you know, I'm based out in California, they start with the UC prompt, and then often the response to the world you come from essay is very much connected to this first prompt here. Um, so that's, that's just a, a piece of advice for students who might be working on both of those. I love that piece of advice, and I also want to say not only is it not not ethical uh, or unethical, it is very ethical and very smart. It's called working smarter, not harder, and I encourage everybody to do that. You should always be looking of ways to take the things that you've already written and worked hard on and polished and use them in other places and other applications, and there usually is going to be an opportunity for overlap there. So let's yeah. take a look at the second prompt, which is a prompt that I feel leads many awry. Uh, And this prompt reads, the lessons we take from failure can be fundamental to later success. That's new language that was just added this year. And then the rest of it goes on, recount an incident or time when you experienced failure. How did it affect you? And what did you learn from the experience? Yeah. And I think that that additional language is there Uh, in part because of the main reason that this prompt can be unsuccessful, which is that students spend so much time talking about the failure itself um, and the negative that happened to them that I'm left as a reader thinking, what a horrible experience for you to have had. There's a very small sort of resolution of that experience, but I don't get a sense of who that student is or how they persisted through that, that problem or failure. And so this, this first sentence here, that says the lessons we take from failure can be fundamental to later success, really sort of underscores this idea that what matters is what you learned from the failure, how you responded to it, what that says about you and your character and and who you are as a person, much more than the failure itself. Um, And and it's hard to get students not to sort of, you know, because it's, it's a lot easier to write negatively. It's a lot easier to talk about how you were crushed or, you know, a particular experience felt so difficult. Those, those are easier words to write. Um, what's more challenging, I think, is for a student to actually step back and reflect on, well, what, what was the positive of this influence? How did it really help me to develop a certain set of skills or a certain attitude that I now use um, to be successful in my everyday life? And if you can't find that through line, then guess what? You shouldn't be answering this prompt. <laughs> because Exactly. 
Yeah, there's nothing worse than an essay about failure because that is the takeaway. It's about failure, not about um, who the student is and anything else about them. And you can only take away what is on the page. Um, and so I have read many essays where the student was talking about either a failure or a really negative situation that they lived through and the sort of the 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 culmination of the whole essay ended up being, but I lived and I'm here. And I thought, okay, but all really I know about is this negative thing. Is that what you want them talking about in the committee room? Um, And I'm, you know, I'm curious if you have thoughts or had similar experiences with students working on this prompt. Well, yeah, I mean, you can read an essay where something bad happens to a student and you can feel empathy for that student and say, this was really unfortunate. I suck that this happened to somebody. This is really terrible but not be in a position where you have anything to advocate with. Uh, you know, if, if you just walk into a committee room and you say, this student experienced a tremendous failure, nobody in, around the table is going to take that as an indication that they should be admitted. And so, right. you know, the, the quality that I think colleges are looking for is resilience, you know, grit, persistence, perseverance. Those kinds of things are, are huge buzzwords in college admissions now. And I think that that's really what you need to be able to convey through this essay Um, And, you know, what I would say about this essay is that often the failure that is effective, that makes for an effective version of this essay, is not um, necessarily intuitive. So what I mean by that is a lot of students will write about the time that they got cut from the team and then they worked really hard over the summer and they made the team the next year. Mm -hmm. Or they had an injury and they rehabbed that injury and came back stronger than ever. Those are the kinds of sort of cliched failure essays that you see again and again that don't have a lot to say about the student. Um, mm-hmm. I think the types of failure that tend to be more effective are sort of internal failures. Like I was in a position where I could have spoken up on behalf of a student um, in my class who was maybe being teased by other students and I didn't for whatever reason. And that was really meaningful to me. And this is why, and this is how I've resolved to sort of stand up for people who are being bullied in the future. Um, if there was a failure that you had that was you know, sort of a crisis of conscience, um, those kinds of failures I think are interesting because they really show how mentally you sort of wrestle with challenges that you experience as a teenager, and they really give you an opportunity to talk about the way that you've resolved to be a better person going forward. And I think that those can make a really big impact on an admission office. Absolutely, they can. I think a couple of words of caution around that is you want to make sure that the failure you're sharing is not showing you in too bad a light. Um, You know, so if it can get a little tricky. I'm just imagining there's it's one thing to watch someone else being bullied and not intervene and another to be the bullier and for that to be a really negative situation you're describing. Um, I agree. You know, and then kind of come away from that. So think about that. It's also you really want to avoid any type of situation where you're talking about cheating or um, or anything like that. Academic integrity is so important at the collegiate level and is such a hot button topic that even mentioning that you once cheated and you really felt badly, so you never cheated again. Probably not a place you want to go. So you do have to kind of be careful on that. Um, Right. And there are instances of failure that I think are an indictment of character just in general, that there are things that you should know not to do. And and even if you wrestled with something like that, you certainly don't want it to be the central part of your application. Right. Um, But there are also just, you know, typical issues that students wrestle with just by virtue of being young. 
and I, you know what I would recommend that you do if you choose this this prompt is to have somebody uh, that's not super close to you, like not a not a family member or best friend, but somebody who knows you fairly well. Read the application essay and and see what they think. You know, is it um, does it come across as negative? Are there aspects of your tone that maybe need to be changed to convey the positive qualities that that you hope to convey? Um, so having some external input there can be really helpful in just making sure that your failure essay isn't going, you know, isn't going to fail by virtue of painting you in a negative light. Exactly. And so, um, Ian, we have about 30 more seconds just in terms of um, how much of the essay should be about the failure and how much about the success. Would you, could Usually you give I, a... It's, it's about a third failure and two-thirds success or, or reflection reaction. I, I wouldn't want the, the failure to take up more than a third of the essay. Yeah, I would agree with you there. Even a quarter of the essay would probably be fine on the failure, depending on what you're writing about. So, um, and then I think, you know, I think there's a lot of interesting, there are a lot of interesting essays that could come from this prompt, but I think my bottom line takeaway, and Ian, I don't know if you agree, it would be proceed with caution when it comes to this one in particular. I I want my students to steer clear of this if if they can help it. But if they bring something to me that I think is really important and that, that could be sort of fit into this prompt, then, then I'm happy to run with it uh, with these sort of uh, words of caution guiding us. Gotcha. Thank you so much, Ian. Uh, thanks to all my guests for joining me today. I'm really excited because next week's show is going to be about all about our listeners. Um, so we're welcoming anyone who's listening and has admissions or college finance questions to call in and have them answered live on air. If you're interested in being a guest on that show, either shoot us an email at gettingin.voiceamerica@gmail.com or just call us that day. And the number to call is 866-472-5788. Um, before I go, I'm going to make a plug for our archives one more time. This is such a great resource. There's a lot of information there related to both college finance and admissions um, in those archives. So take a minute to look through the show descriptions to see what might be applicable to you. And you can also download the shows for free on iTunes uh, and take them with you wherever you're going and listen to them when it makes sense for you. Uh, We're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. So please come back. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.